As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Frank Lampard returns to football at Everton. Is that the right decision for both him and the club? We'll be looking at the latest transfers as Christian Eriksen returns to football at Brentford. We'll also take a closer look at the North East with big news at both Newcastle and Sunderland. All that and more coming up on this episode of The Game. Hello, I'm Hugh Wizencroft alongside Tom Roddy, Tom Clark and Alison Rudd. I hope you're all well. Let's get straight into it. Loads to talk about. And we start with Goodison Park and Everton. Frank Lampard agreeing a two and a half year deal to become the club's new manager. Uh, he's putting his backroom staff in place. He's working on new signings as well. It sees a return uh, to football for the former Derby boss. He was sacked by Chelsea in January of 2021. He's reached a championship playoff final. He's finished in the Premier League's top four. He's reached the Champions League knockout phases and, of course, takes over from Rafa Benitez. Everton have only won once in their last 13 games. Alison, I'll start with you. Is this a good decision by the club? Well, I feel, first of all, I've been told off by um, an Everton fan for reading too much into banners that might have indicated the fans want Frank Lampard and or cross with Bill Kenwright. And I do see their point because if there's ever um, something nasty, some sort of abuse at a football ground, uh, we're always quick to say, obviously, this is a very small minority and most fans would would say this is nothing to do with them. Then it's not representative of the way they behave. And I think in this instance, the idea that all Everton fans, they really, really wanted Frank Lampard and nobody else is is just based on one scrawled piece of handkerchief. It's not it's not necessarily the case that there is this overwhelming sense of Everton have got their man. Probably what they've got is the best of a shortlist that was, as we've discussed previously on the podcast, inconsistent and erratic and curious. And Frank Lampard probably sees, seems the most grown up of the people and uh, of the choices available I think it's a really good appointment from Frank Lampard's point of view because he was in danger, I think, of becoming a caricature and, and, and wrongly, he did a good job with Derby, came out of that, um, I think, with, with, with glowing references, actually, came very close to being promoted. And at Chelsea, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. Let's not forget he was a, they were clever in appointing Frank Lampard. They had a transfer embargo. They needed to rely on young English players and they you know they started breaking records you know Chelsea started to field 
the youngest team, the most English team that they was, you know, most hat trick scored by a, a English youngster. It was just like they were twenty, twenty one. They were doing the business, and that takes a type of manager to cajole that sort of performance and maturity out of players, especially when they're playing for a club with high expectations like Chelsea. So it wasn't all rubbish what he did at Chelsea. It was just that I don't think Frank Lampard truly understood that it was always going to be relatively short-term appointment and when they could get in someone with... um, It was just older, had more experience, a bit more charisma, perhaps, he was going to go. They don't... don't, There isn't much patience at Chelsea. And then subsequent to him losing his job... He's been linked with others, um, Villa and Norwich. And, you know, word got round that they were a bit sniffy about him, really. He didn't really, you know, his presentation wasn't as good as um, Stephen Gerrard's at Villa and wasn't the right fit for Norwich where they needed something a bit more, with a bit more coaching oomph than he could provide. So I think Lampard was in danger of spiralling into this category of brief managerial moments where I think he, he would have learned a lot from Derby and Chelsea. And if he can apply that at Everton and show that he's a proper managerial talent, then then it's good for him. Whether that's what Everton need, obviously everyone wants to appoint someone who has something to prove rather than resting on their laurels. But he doesn't have experience of the type of problems that are at Goodison. Um, I did spend the weekend uh, with my family, so I was slight, just slightly out of the football loop. And the reason I thought oh, Frank Lampard must be about to be appointed Everton manager, was that I I read a headline saying that Frank Lampard signs Donny van der Beek. And then I thought, oh, if he he doesn't get the Everton job, Frank Lampard's going to have to go to dinner party with Donny (laughs) van der Beek and say, well, I own him now. Well, Donny's not not doing anything else. I'm just bringing him out (laughs) because I thought I I had a club and I don't. But um, it's, 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 yeah, one of the worst kept secrets in football. But not, I think from... Lampard's point of view, yeah, good. I'm not so sure about Everton, though. Tom Roddy, what do you think? Because Rafa Benitez said in his parting statement from Everton that you don't really know essentially what a mess things are until you go into the club. And uh, it does seem like a, a place that's a little bit all over the place, if you if you know what I mean. So is Lampard making the right decision here? I think it was the only decision, really. Um, and, I mean, Rafa Benitez's comments... Uh, you can sort of take with a pinch of salt. There's um, there's there's clearly a lack of sort of coherence going on at Everton, um, uh, working in in absolutely different directions, which you've spoken about on previous podcasts, and and isn't the best environment to be working in, especially for a manager who has a definitely has a point to prove. I found it interesting the 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 coaching team that he's sort of looking to to put together because Jody Morris we we've known for a while now hasn't going was wasn't wasn't going to be a part of Frank Lampard's next coaching team but he he continues to work with Joe Edwards um who's been at Chelsea for years and years and years and is known as 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 a bright young coach um but then it's interesting that he brings in Paul Clement or is looking to bring in Paul Clement at, at, at the very least because it's that experienced head a guy who's been at um some of the biggest clubs in European football and of course ironically we thought may have ended up back at Everton a couple of years ago with Carlo Angelotti, but but didn't. I think that shows a 
a sign of Lampard recognising he needs experienced people who have been around the block alongside him rather than just a, a coaching network which works well together. And he'll have learned a, a hell of a lot as well because it was far, far from easy at Chelsea. The one thing that I, I kind of stands out to me is you've got an Everton team that is really has, has struggled defensively. Um, I mean, they've kept one clean sheet in the Premier League since September and they've hired a coach who is known for attacking football, really. There were there were some brilliant days at Chelsea, brilliant performances under him. Um, but especially towards the end, he wasn't, wasn't necessarily known for being uh, a, a a defensive coach it was it was more exciting attractive football that's potentially an issue i mean i've always thought from back from the even from the angelotti days they have they have a really good starting 11 there so it's it's not as it's it's a team that should only go up really i mean 16th in the premier league they they should only start climbing now they're going to have probably Donny van der Beek, who we've mentioned already, on loan. It looks like he's going to turn down the chance to go to Crystal Palace um, to stay in the northwest. Is that good for him and Frank Lampard in terms of uh, giving the club a boost? Well, it's great for Donny van der Beek, isn't it? Freedom at last, at long last, from Manchester United. I'd, I'm not sure about Frank Lampard, whether Donny van der Beek is going to necessarily help Everton's situation. Um, I think the guys have been quite diplomatic in uh, summing up the pros and cons. It's it's a kind of triumph or disaster thing for me, disappointment. He's very good at getting young players boosted on confidence. As Tom says, he plays a lot of attacking football, but he's also shown some tactical naivety at times. And has he got the experience and the wherewithal to manage a club like Everton for whom there's so much going on off the pitch as well? So it, it, could, it, it could go one of two very extreme ways, I think, for me, this one. And I think Frank Lampard was at a point in his career where maybe he needed a bit of a more settled club so I admire him for taking the opportunity if you like because it's not it's, there's no guarantees with Everton that he could be out of a job by the summer if it goes disastrously wrong but um, I've said before on the podcast that Donny van der Beek is a great player I thought he was fantastic for Ajax he's never had a chance to show that for um, Manchester United and now that he can hopefully play without the pressure of being at Manchester United with a bit of freedom um, and give a bit a bit of creativity to an Everton midfield that has lacked it at times this season. I'm not surprised that Frank Lampard's gone to Everton, but I just looked at the league and, and I really thought they would appoint someone that you, that you you almost guaranteed would would drag them away from the mm. relegation battle. And I still think there's enough of a question mark over Frank Lampard because of his lack of experience. Yeah. He's managed to you know think two and a half seasons that you don't necessarily feel it's going to be a guaranteed success, which is what I thought they would try and do even if it was someone who wasn't a, a glamorous name look Vita Pereira we spoke about him before you know he he has been whether you like it or not a league winner a title winner in two different countries and you're going with Frank Lampard who I think maybe the fans are more happy with because it's a it's you know better the devil you know but it doesn't guarantee anything for me I think it's a massive risk from I, I wonder if that's interesting Hugh because I wonder if the appointment of Frank Lampard because he isn't associated with getting teams out of trouble. He doesn't have that anywhere remotely close to his CV, right? No. Whether that makes Everton ownership and fans feel 
head in the sand. Well, there's not a problem. We've appointed a progressive coach with lots to learn. That mm. means we're a club on the up. Yeah. We've, well, we've appointed a club that's going to play nice football. Mm. A manager is going to play, play nice football. And this is, it, there isn't a problem. It's like delusion, perhaps. Well, maybe a little bit. But and also, going back to a point Tom made about that they should only go up from here and with Lampard's confident style of management, attacking style of management, they could do. But then you think about the squad that they've got and... Yes, you, you mentioned Donny van der Beek, but they've lost a lot of senior top players, Luca Dina being one of them. Yes, they brought in replacements, but are they of the same quality? Dominic Calvert-Lewin struggled with injuries all season and a lot of the players look short on form and confidence and whether Lampard can add all of that and the tactical acumen that he needs in tough games down at the bottom, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure, but I, I wonder whether Tom's point and Alisson's about the kind of perception is as much a part of this as anything. Yeah. Attacking manager, he was at Chelsea, one of the greats of the modern game. This is exciting, this is progressive, and let's just hope he picks up enough wins to make sure we don't get dragged into a relegation scrap. Do you think this is a good moment for me to tell you about my encounter with Paul Clement? Absolutely. Encounter's a strong word. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> is it? <laughs> could, could be anything. Uh, Paul Clement was manager of Swansea. Arsene Wenger was manager of... Arsenal and at the Emirates for the post-match huddle you're put in a strangely tiny soundproof room which is all black and dark and spooky anyway um, you, there was this little huddle there were about four or five of us Paul Clement had his back to the wall and we formed a semicircle and I was to the right of Paul Clement with my shoulder against the wall and then he was talking. I don't know if you remember, Paul Clement, when he's managing anyway, he, he dresses a bit like a 1950s undertaker, terribly starched, <laughs> white collar. Um, Always a waistcoat. He looked, yeah, he, black, very black suit. Mm -hmm. Very, well, very undertakery. Really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so he was stood there. And I noticed there was um, a cut, must have been a shaving cut on his cheek. And it burst. And the trickle of blood slowly started to go down his face and I was thinking while he was doing his interviews and I was thinking well that's going to trickle and trickle and land on his starch white collar any minute now what do I what do I do and almost without thinking I grabbed a tissue from my bag and stemmed the flow of blood <laughs> literally physically stemmed the flow of blood and then said to him, you were about to bleed onto your collar. And he was like, well, yeah, well th thanks, thanks. And, and obviously the rest of the presser was a bit sort of... Ugh. And then afterwards, a guy from one of the Welsh newspapers who'd been stood on the opposite side of the semicircle and hadn't seen it unfold, he said to me, first of all, he said... Well, I'm so glad I didn't see the blood. I faint the minute I see any blood. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't see the blood. And then he said, but I was very, very worried. I said, why? He said, well, because from what, where I was standing, Alison Rudd of the Times was about to snog a Premier League manager. <laughs> <laughs> so to him, it looked like I'd lunged forward trying to give him a, 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 a necky. I mean, it was... <laughs> 
So well, I, don't, it, I don't it, know it, if I can beat Paul Clement again, really. Mm. Well, from yeah. that, that reporter's perspective, it was a, 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 a close encounter. A very close encounter. <laughs> and also, let's we should all say kudos for the Welsh accent. Well done. That's, mm, very that's good. Very good. Very bold to go for that. And, <laughs> and maintain it as well. If Frank Lampard does to Everton what you can do with the Welsh accent, then they'll be absolutely fine. Uh, up next on the Game Podcast, we're going to catch up with Martin Hardy on everything that's going on in the North East. Stay with us. Well, we mentioned Donny van der Beek already. Uh, he's on his way to Goodison Park, of course. Elsewhere, it is transfer deadline day, by the way, as we speak. And elsewhere, Spurs signing Dejan Kulishevsky from Juventus and possibly his uh, ex-teammate in Serie A, Rodrigo Bentancur. I think one of the big questions of the transfer window was whether Tottenham were going to support Antonio Conte in the right way and maybe you know, hold on to him in terms of the promises they made when he arrived at the club. Tom Roddy, do you think these signings or signing achieves that? Yes, it does, because it shows, if anything, it's just, it's simply symbolic. <laughs> it's simply symbolic to Antonio Conte that that they are behind him. Um, I mean, it's been a little bit of a disaster up until now, the transfer window for, for Tottenham. They've, they've thought they've had three transfers um, in the bag and then they've fallen through with Luis Diaz and Traore. So to get to this point now, it appeared for a period that that nothing was going to end up happening. But the, the key area of the team that Conte really wanted to improve was midfield. So to get Kulisevsky and ben, and possibly Bentanka as well, using the connections that Paratici has at Juventus uh, at least shows it's a symbol because even the likes of the players as well they've they've been impressed by the fact the club have managed to convince Antonio Conte to be manager for them but that there is an absolutely an understanding at Tottenham that that squad is is not strong enough the issue now for Tottenham is is also the outgoings because regardless of of the incomings Conte wanted a clear out as well with Ndombele, Lo Celso and Deli Alley as well so all of that needs to be completed today as well really Liverpool they've got a new attacking talent in the shape of the Colombia winger Luis Diaz from Porto 37 and a half million pounds up front a further twelve and a half million in potential add-ons. Twenty-five years old, signs a five-year deal. He had previously been linked with a move to Spurs, so it's it's a hijacking from Liverpool, if you like. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it happened. It's a fact. <laughs> this is how the transfer window works. You know, it's 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 Machiavellian. You know, you make the move before your your rivals do. Um, is this Liverpool for you, Alison? Signalling that they they might be feeling one of the two, Sadio Mane. Probably not Mo Salah, but looking down the road, they have to start thinking about life after them. Well, it's a bit of a glum way of looking at it. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a pragmatic way of looking at it. It's a great way to run your football club. A great young talent. You've got the best years of his career in the position that he plays. And Sadio Mane may be on the, on the downtrend. Well, I mean, but the, this is how you run a club properly. You made it sound negative. It, you know, ever since... <laughs> Ever since Bill Shankly introduced the idea of you don't rest on your laurels and you, you know, you just renew your team quicker than maybe fans expect and and don't sort of think that that player looks at his peak. No, not interested. Bring in someone new who's hungrier, younger, faster, fitter, 
always make sure you're always one step ahead. This is just very good business. Everyone loves a good hijacking. I think it's a really positive thing in the transfer <laughs> window. It's what makes the transfer window fun as opposed to just boring business stuff. Um, and I don't, I don't think it means there's any panic about Liverpool's for current forward line being on a downward spiral. It just makes great business sense to ensure that should there be injuries or some sort of downturn in form, no matter how minute, you, you've got someone there who's proven. Um, I mean, you've been mentioning who Spurs have bought. I have no idea if they're going to work well or not, but I do feel Luis Diaz will. And he's exactly the right sort of player for Liverpool. This is the thing. Liverpool don't do loads of business because it's pointless. You need someone who can work in the system that Klopp has perfected and he has pace and he will work hard and he will close down and he will press. And it's not just about his skillfulness, it's about his attitude and energy. And I do love it when a player is almost about to sign for a relatively big club and they say, oh, in my heart of heart, I've always wanted to sign for Liverpool. Can't believe someone of your intelligence, Alison, would be fooled by that <laughs> PR drivel. But I agree with you that it's excellent to see this kind of ruthless hijacking um, in the transfer window. And it's it's very in keeping with Liverpool's, with the way they've operated in the transfer window over the last couple of seasons. They've targeted players. They've been very quick to act. You know, I, I guess it comes down to whether he's going to be a Jota or a Minamino. Um I would suggest he's more of a Jota type player, but will he have a similar kind of impact? I think there was lots of excitement about Minamino when he joined, but hasn't quite worked out in the same way. So whether Diaz will have the same impact that Jota has, Jota obviously having played in the Premier League before he joined Liverpool, that definitely helped. But as Alisson says, it seems like a sensible transfer from the outside in terms of ticking all the boxes of being a right right man for Liverpool. Uh, one move that has been confirmed in the Premier League just before we came on air, if you like. Brentford signing Christian Eriksen. He, of course, is now fitted with a pacemaker after his cardiac arrest and collapse at Euro 2020. It, it will, for many people, be amazing to see him back out there. But, of course, those of you that listened to the podcast when we had uh, Fabrice Moamba on a couple of weeks ago, it's slightly scary, I, I, I think. It is for me personally anyway. Um, Tom Roddy, tell us why and how it's happened and, and if you think Ericsson will be a success at Brentford. Well, a, a success is a success is really entirely an unknown. You'd, you'd assume so. I mean, he's we, we saw him for so many years at Tottenham and his creativity and quality on the ball uh, is 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 top class, and it's important for for Brentford because it's a it's another kind of step forward for them, um, putting them on the map again. It's I think it, it's maybe it's maybe a little bit of a, a a gamble because I'm similar to you you Hugh in feeling slightly uncomfortable com- uncomfortable about it. It's it's the it's really the story of the transfer window um and it will be an incredible moment to see him him playing again in the in the premier league and we 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 think you know the way things are going brentford are, are going to be safe this season uh, but getting a player like him just almost helps secure their future a little bit helps put them on the map in terms of the transfer window for the summer as well makes them a tr- an attractive club an even more attractive club to, to play as abroad as well as in, in the England. 
Uh, we'll be talking on Thursday about who are the big winners and losers of the transfer window. Maybe we'll revisit a couple of those names we just mentioned a few moments ago. But since it's transfer deadline day, we're going to have to do a straight swap because I know Tom Roddy's going to be really busy covering stuff for the Times. So Martin Hardy's in. And, and, and listen, this is one the fans are going to go wild for. Martin, <laughs> hello. <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? You okay? <clears throat> very well, very well. Um, you've joined us so we can get an update on everything that's going on in the Northeast. And I know you're very busy today, a lot like Tom Roddy in terms of those new signings. In particular, Newcastle United. They've had a great name through the door already. I'll try and pronounce this correctly. Bruno Guimaraes or Guimaraes, I don't know. But he looks like a great player from Lyon in central midfield. They might get Matt Target. They might get a striker from Ronce. Another pronunciation for me, Hugo Ekatik. See, there you go. There you go. I almost had all three. Hugo <laughs> Ekatike uh, might be through the door as well. Just tell us whether you think these are going to happen and the one that has happened, how good a player is he? <laughs> Newcastle, I think, have been linked with 115 players in January. <clears throat> and I think their transfer outlay is, is probably, if, if they are successful with the players that you've mentioned, is going to be around about 115 million. Um, plus add-ons for things like if Newcastle stay in the Premier League for two seasons, um, the Gamera's deal will, I think, incorporate about another £7 million go back to Lyon. So you can see it's been an incredibly busy month. Um, Matt Target, I think there was a loan um, transfer in place now for the rest of the season. So I think that's going to go ahead. Hugo Ekatike, the price is agreed. Um, as you said, £25 million plus, I think, about another £8 million in add-ons. And they are pushing very hard to get that one done. At the start of the window, they wanted a young up-and-coming centre-forward and he was always the first choice. So they will be very, very pleased if they can get that one done um, by close of play tonight. Um, 19 years old, scored eight goals this season. Um, the kind of player they're hoping to develop. The rest of the, the window you would say, sorry, the rest of the signings they made, you would say, as they've moved towards experience in terms of Trippier, Wood, Dan Byrne is another that we expect to come in today. But the one that's probably exciting people the most is the Gamera's tri transfer, which is a player very highly rated, linked with, I think, if I was to be right, Arsenal um, and Juventus, perhaps. Um, a player of international standing was on the bench for the chaos for Brazil's international um, a couple of days ago. Uh, very comfortable with the ball, somebody that would probably be the bit of style that they would Newcastle would have liked. They have spent money, and this is probably reflected in how they've spent money with the managers or the head coach, Eddie Howes, um, full backing. So they have they've bought players for now, and the, the needs of the club is very much to stay up. But that signing is one um whereby that's a player that will flourish and well, you hope will flourish and um that's probably the pick of the minute in terms of the, the one that's really exciting Newcastle's fans at this stage. The goal for those Newcastle fans and what we thought heading into this January transfer window is that Newcastle would end the month with the signings that would assure them and that most of us would feel would keep them in the Premier League. Do you think by February the 1st, uh, they will have achieved that? They would have brought in the players that you're comfortable would keep them up? Well, if, if they are successful with Dan Burner, we think they are... In theory, and Matt Target, you could have very close to a new back four. And they've conceded, what, 43 goals this season, second worst in the Premier League. Sorting out the defence was huge. What's interesting, though, is you may say, well, if Newcastle do stay up, and I think the, the result that leads is arguably, arguably as important as the transfer window itself. Um, if they do stay up, 
you would expect them to go again in the tra- transfer market and be major players. And next season, you might go, well, would Chris Wood get a game? Possibly not. Matty Target probably back at Villa. So, so there is short-termism to what they've done. They are unquestionably stronger for the, for the transfer window. You've already seen in that Leeds game, without contradicting myself, the impact of Kieran Trippier and Chris Wood in terms of having a centre forward and somebody with experience and voice at the back. So they will be pleased with what they've done. There's no givens. Everybody else at the bottom of the table is fighting for their lives as well. Norwich have got good results. Uh, Aston Villa have obviously pushed away. Watford have brought in a very experienced manager. So it's going to be a real scrap at the bottom. And I've always, all season, thought if you keep an eye on Brent, Brentford and you can keep keep them within touching distance, that might be one team that gets dragged down. And I think off the top of my head, they are on 23 points, Newcastle on 15 and they play each other in, in the middle of February, towards the end of February. So they've given themselves a, a real good chance of staying up. If you think about uh, a couple of weeks ago, they didn't have these new players. They didn't have the win against Leeds. In the last two games, Newcastle taken four points, which is a huge boost to a team that's fighting for its life at the bottom. Um, but as, as one person has said on Twitter, uh, Twitter this morning, we're going to walk the cha- in reply to me say, saying these players are going to sign. Somebody said we're going to walk the championship next season. So there you go. It's still, it, despite the this complete turnaround in a club that 12 months ago at and 10 o'clock in the morning on transfer deadline, they briefed that there would be no business. There's a massive turnaround, but there is still a, that, that delightful element of northeast cynicism uh, sprinkled on top. Lots of ifs, buts and maybes, Martin, of course, at this stage whilst we're recording. But it's interesting to me, you slightly alluded to it there, that Newcastle seem to have almost done two different types of business in this window. You've got your Burns, Target, Wood, Trippier, players who know the Premier League who are going to help with that immediate upturn, that upkick in form um, and in confidence and in experience in a relegation scrap. And then you've got some of these players that are brought in from abroad. Ekatike, as you say, a young up-and-coming striker who maybe won't be going in ahead of Chris Wood now, yeah. but will be ahead of him next season. Do, does, does it seem to be that they've almost done a group of business that will hopefully, for them, ensure that they stay up and then some of these signings that they're hopefully going to get across the line today, that they're they're very much for the future. You know, Guimarez, Ekatike, are they for next season, do you think? Yeah, no, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's interesting that Ed, because Newcastle haven't... Um, appointed a director of football or a chief executive yet, Eddie Howe has ended, ended up on the kind of the four-person um, transfer committee, which has Amanda Stavely, Steve Nixon, who is the long-term head of recruitment of the club, Eddie Howe and Jason Tindall, his number two. So Howe has ended, ended up in a really prominent position. And in the modern game, um, that's not necessarily the case where you think recruitment teams will often work and then come back to the manager or the head coach and say, we found him, him and him. What has happened by either chance or design is that you've ended up with Howe in the middle of that selection committee and his need, which is not immediate, is, a, is exactly the same as the club's, which is immediate. It's like this whole project and from what we are told, the, the PIF, the Public Investment Fund from Saudi Arabia, were kind of, look, if we go down, we'll come back. However, the, the, that, that project takes a massive a massive hit in terms of when you're actually going to start to compete with the top six if you have a, a year or two years in the championship. So there has been an immediacy between the manager who knows, right, he's come into, this, to, into the squad, looked at it, played a delicate balance in that, which is he has to be seen to praise the squad, but at the same time, he has to say, we need reinforcements here to keep this team up. 
the, 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 a lot of the team, that certainly the, the defence is what took the club from the Championship into the Premier League and it has needed improvement um, for quite a long time. What, what, what you've alluded to there, I, th- I completely agree with. They've signed players they think will keep Newcastle up and at the same time they've signed exciting young players they hope they can develop for the future. And it, as I said there before, if Newcastle do stay in the Premier League, and you're correct, there are a lot of ifs, then is when you, you would start to see Gomez and Ekatika will be signings that will come to more prominence and will probably be, you probably see more players like them coming in once once the club is stabilised. But it's two wins in 23 games in all competitions. So the need for immediate impact is absolutely huge. That can't be understated. Going through the records the last five seasons, everybody bar Southampton has won at least nine. Every team that stayed up has won at least nine games. Now, Newcastle have drawn a lot. That might drop drop it down but that means you you are potentially needing another six at least victories and you've only had two so far so the team did need help right now and, and in fairness to them that is what they've done just an observation there is this thing in football a sort of philosophical point of what is a football club it seems to me listening to you speak martin it made me think this is a club that has new ownership new manager so many incoming players that what goes out on the pitch will be unrecognisable from what Newcastle were in August. You have fans who have a new morality because they've had to think, I don't know how deeply they did think, but they've had to think about the moral backdrop to the ownership model. And I just think, what what will we end with this season? What form of Newcastle will it be? It will be nothing like the Newcastle that started the season. And part of me is uncomfortable with that on Every level. No, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I don't know what you want. I'm not sure what you want me to say there. Um, should should a, a nation own a Premier League club? Um, possibly not, but it has happened. The Premier League, with perhaps government assistance, have let this go through. From the Newcastle supporters' perspective, I don't, I don't claim to speak for every Newcastle fan. Would you? Would, would they be one hundred percent comfortable being owned or eighty percent owned by the public investment um, fund of Saudi Arabia? Perhaps they would say they aren't. But by the same token, do they play any part in that process of it being yes or no? Well, it was a government decision and a Premier League decision, and only Newcastle fans would perhaps um, push towards appeals and putting pressure on the Premier League that I don't actually think did a great deal anyway. Um, the the element of possibly, and I'm not justifying this, maybe that it's escape, the football club represents escapism and it's it's been in a pretty grim position for quite a few years because of the relationship between the football club, its supporters and the previous owner. Um, but yes, the, 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 the something has massively changed in the city and in the football club in the last four months. The, 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 the giddiness of new players will gloss over a lot of that. Funny enough, to, to go, I did the interview with Alan St. Maximin last week and he mentioned Newcastle supporters who had seen the team do nothing or win nothing for 40 years. What you will find in that is you have generations of fans who've gone for a very long time. Um, I don't like them being misled into arguments about who owns Uber or where Saudi Arabia has links to other sports. But in fairness, nobody seems too bothered about boxing or tennis or golf. But that's not an argument I, I go along with. Um, 
but you have perhaps met you have fans who've been gone for a very long time and this period excites them for what will happen on the pitch um, And but as you say the club has changed and some supporters are okay with the ownership but some aren't necessarily too enthusiastic but it's a kind of a case of what can they do um, do they stop going or in this period where the club is actually showing ambition, probably for the first time in, I don't know, over 15 years, perhaps 20 years, going back to when Bobby Robson was in charge. And then the period before that, when Kevin Key was in charge. So it's a rarity for Newcastle to try and fulfil its potential. Um, so the supporters have gone on board for that because it's the football club they love going to watch play. There is another element to it, which is which I think goes around um, English football, and perhaps around the world in that certainly in the stadiums that I've been in post COVID, the atmosphere feels stronger. People have missed their football teams. There's been very little to do. So you have that coming in at the same time as well. So suddenly it's very difficult. It's starting to become very difficult to get tickets for Newcastle game, Newcastle's games. So yes, something has changed, but to the supporters who want to watch a team, they will see it as a positive, but yeah, of course um, there is an uncomfortableness about it in there as well let's talk about Sunderland Martin um, another club in the northeast whose fans need something need something special um, Lee Johnson following a 6-0 League 1 thrashing at Bolton Wanderers has been sacked uh, he only came to the Stadium of Light in December of 2020 he's gone now alongside his assistant head coach Jamie McAllister two points off top spot in League 1 41 wins out of 75 games. He also won the EFL Trophy against Tranmere in March. That was the club's first win at Wembley since 1973, but it was their eighth defeat in 29 league games this season. The next series of Sunderland Till I Die just got better, didn't it? Cannot wait. Um, is it a fair decision, Martin? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um if you are going to get stuffed 6-0 away from home, don't do it when you've got 5,000 fans travelling to you. We had, we had Storm Malik up here at the weekend in the northeast, um, which you may have seen blew roofs off, um, smashed cars, ripped up trees. So for that many supporters to get through the weather, travel to the northwest and to see that was a really bad capitulation. Um, there is an argument to say that he was fortunate to keep his job in the first place last season, having failed to get promotion. They had to win a really good position with about nine games to go. And I think they only won one or two games in that run and then blew themselves out in the playoffs in terms of the home leg uh, of their the, the tie and had nothing left for the second half. The league table, yes, they are two points off top place. However, they have played four more games than Wigan who are above them. Wigan are averaging more than two points a game. So if you'd extrapolate that curve, Wigan could be sitting there on 63, 64 points and they are therefore out of reach. That would suggest some of them are heading back into the playoffs, which they have proved really bad at in, the, uh, in League One so far. Um, so, yes, I was surprised he was given the reins to take on this season. Um, the form has been very up and down. But if you look in the League One at the minute, Sunderland's form is the, in the last five games is the worst of the top 10 teams. Um, so, yes, the, the, the timing is strange. And I, from conversations today, I don't think, I could be proved wrong, that um, there is a manager going to be appointed today because they are trying to do business to bring in players. But when you do look at potential names, I mean, <laughs> Duncan Ferguson's suddenly gone flying and is the favourite this morning to be the new manager. But you look at people like 
Grant McCann, who's available and did a good job, very good job at Hull last season, taking them up as champions from League One with very little money. You've also got people like Neil Lennon and Paul Cook floating around as well. Um, funnily enough, South Shields' manager at the minute is a certain Kevin Phillips, who was appointed <laughs> about two weeks ago. And the, the chances now of them signing Jermaine Defoe appear to have increased because Lee Johnson has left. And even Jermaine Defoe has been mentioned as a possible manager. So, yes, it's, um, it's the usual crazy scenario in the North who swear the teams don't really do that much but there's always a load going on um, and even Middlesbrough now pushing very hard to get into the Premier League themselves with, uh, under the managership of um, Chris Wilder had another good result of the weekend um, so yes uh, plenty to keep us all busy Martin you're going to be absolutely you have so much work next season aren't you you'll be on the podcast every single time mean? so much so much work next season how about the month that just, <laughs> just winding you up <laughs> at, about, at about one minute past 11 if you hear a massive thud that's just me falling on the floor collapsing <laughs> and end this month uh yes no 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 that, well it would it's funny because we took it for granted. If you go back to, I may get the year wrong, say early 2000s, we had the three Northeast clubs in the Premier League. Say around 2009, I think we had Newcastle and the Middlesbrough in the Premier League. We had Hull in the Premier League as well. And then obviously, I think on the final day of the season, Middlesbrough and Newcastle got relegated. Um, but there have been periods where the three teams were in the Premier League and part of the thick fixtures and fitness, if you like. But Sunderland's... Um, I went through the stat last night. Since they sacked Peter Reid in 2002, they've had 18, they are looking for their 18th manager. So a bit of stability might help them in, in, to get there. And you, you did the interview with the alley with Chris Wilder, who, who is doing a very good job and may prove to be a really astute sign. But yes, it would be nice to be doing games in the, the Northeast rather than driving around the Northwest at about three o'clock in the morning trying to get to <laughs> a Wednesday night when the M62 keeps shutting itself. So yes, uh, we'll see how it goes. Martin, you're, you're, you're about 18 months away from a Champions League European tour, mate. I mean, you, you get your passport, forget the Northeast. It's very, it's very difficult to predict. I do actually think all season I've thought Newcastle will go down, but now the Leeds win and the signings, I think that they may be okay. But there, there, there may be a, a, a book or a bet to place Newcastle, Sunderland and Middlesbrough all in the championship next season. Um, and we'll see what happens. Sunderland fans will be shocked to hear you say that, Martin. Just just coming <laughs> just coming back to them briefly, you, list, yeah. you said about all that big list of managers that they've had. It strikes yes. me that, you know, and I was saw a poll on a Sunderland um, fan site on Twitter this morning that said, yes, 59% right for Johnson to go, no, 41. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not a clear cut one. But as you say, no. that kind of run of form, it seems that Sunderland is it's they're not kind of given the same leeway. They had such an amazing start, fourteen wins, two defeats and one draw up to October. And you kind of thought, yeah. This is it, he's done it, he's cracked it. Um yeah. and then they go on a bad run and that that's what they focus on. But it just in terms of the manager, it strikes me now that they either go very experienced man, and I've seen as well like Mick McCarthy being linked with the job as well. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, that would be interesting. Or they kind of go young, young and exciting, and they that Sam Allardyce and Simon Grayson have been mentioned. So well, exactly, been- exactly. But you have this thing with Sunderland, maybe a little bit. We were talking about Everton earlier before, where it's about perception as much as anything. And the fan base, as you say, with five thousand fans watching, you get thrashed six yeah. nil doesn't help. And so it's yeah. massive disappointment, isn't it? Where, whereas actually, I wonder whether you mentioned Grant McCann, someone who's done it only last season. That'd be a bit boring, if you like, but it might be the perfect appointment. Where do you think they'll go in terms of? experience versus excitement that's why it does feel a bit knee-jerk because 
the conversations today suggest it's get players done first before mm. they decide a new manager. Somebody like McCann to me would make sense. He's available, hardworking, knows the division, and has just got a team promoted from it. Mm. Can begin work immediately. It was always the case. I think Sunderland got relegated from the Premier, Premier League in 2017 or 16 or 17. So it's not that long ago. And people went, the club will bounce back straight away. And you're like, you need to look at Sheffield Wednesday, who left the Premier League in 1999, and Leeds, who left the Premier League in 2004. And it can be a real, real long road mm. to get back in. So to that end, I would say now, not say McCann or whoever it is, needs to have the immediate impact and Sunderland need to get promoted, however they, however, however they do that. So somebody with knowledge of the division seems like an essential rather than gambling on a name at this stage, I would say anyway. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we go on the game podcast, um, let's just take a look back at the the weekend. These weekends without the Premier League, they're pretty good, I've got to say. <laughs> I know it's not going to keep me in a job, but I, you know I'm enjoying them anyway. The EFL taking centre stage once again. African Cup of Nations as well, pretty good. What have you noticed, Tom? Well, I'm going to talk about Lincoln, but they did lose, so this is, you'll forgive me, I hope. That's allowed, right? I'm not no, picking them up. You can, you can go ahead. So I was at Lincoln's game. We lost 2-1 to Burton Albion, managed by Jimmy Floyd Hasbank, and they were brilliant. It was, it was, I hadn't seen anything like it before. They were kind of what I would describe as the modern day football version of Tony Pulis's Stoke, in that they were, you know, very athletic, pressing all over the pitch, but they were kind of coming down to corners, long throws, and knocking it long. But, you know, my dad was sat next to me and he was going, Oh, they're just hoofing it, aren't they? And I was like, No, it's more sophisticated than that. So for corners, they put every single player forward, every single player. And I was in the home stand with, football fans going leap shouting at our striker get upfield and I was like well hang on a minute why what if they make a run to the front post you're not going to be saying it then they scored their winner from a corner and this brilliant system where they had two men essentially on our goalkeeper very cleverly stopping him from moving then they had the, that train that we saw England do of three players running and then they had three kind of like American football style defenders but on the edge of our box like pinning back our players it was really fascinating That's Brentford style basically yeah yeah but it was like but with done with real aggression. Um, and I was speaking to a friend of mine who uh, is actually a Sunderland fan, and he kind of summed up Burton brilliantly for me. He said, they're simultaneously admirable and absolutely infuriating, mm-hmm. which 
for a Burton fan is absolutely fantastic for for your op- for an opposition fan is um is it is infuriating mm. to watch because there's nothing you can do about it and it struck me that you know Jimmy Floyd Housebank's gone back to the club I wonder whether now he's going to kind of improve his rep and whether you know maybe he'll take Burton up but whether he might get a bigger job further down the line because it was it was genuinely really impressive to watch they really did a job on us Alison there were there were records broken in football this weekend as well in English football this weekend yeah 7-2 um Oxford beat Gillingham, which is a nice scoreline, but you've probably heard that one before. I certainly have as a Liverpool fan. It wasn't the scoreline. No, it was the fact that four penalties were scored in that match. And I think it's the 1950s, 1957 or something since that happened. Um, Four penalties awarded and four penalties converted by the same player. Incredible. What I love about it is that the player, he's ex-Liverpool, he's called Cameron Brannigan. And I just thought that is a nursery rhyme, isn't it? Cameron Brannigan scored his goals at Gillingham. I mean, it's, <laughs> he will become folklore, guarantee it. It might also, interestingly, be the last thing that Cameron Brannigan does for Oxford because he's the subject of a bid from Blackpool, I believe, today on transfer deadline day. So well, what, a what way, an audition. What a way to bow out of your time <laughs> at Oxford. But the thing that was amazing about that is he's never taken a penalty before. Mm. And he scored four in one game. He should never take them again, surely. That's as good as it gets, right? Never, ever take a penalty again, surely. He scored four in a game. Gillingham's defending, well, I think the manager said it was appalling, but it must have been particularly appalling because I think one reason you don't see that many penalties awarded to the same team in football is that referees don't like to do that. Have you noticed, you know, referee gives a penalty and then the next incident... They don't give it. Mm. It's like there's a there's a sort of inbuilt reluctance to keep on awarding penalty after penalty. They don't like to do it. Uh, so to do it four times, it, it must have been very clear cut. <laughs> and just very quickly as well, and this is kind of, uh, we talked about this on Thursday in terms of Neil Critchley and Blackpool, but we also talked about free scoring Fulham and Blackpool went to Fulham, got a one-all draw, which is a very, very impressive result. So they, they keep performing and Fulham finally, st- well, not fully stopped, Weren't, weren't, weren't kept to a clean sheet but mm. you know pretty good performance from Blackpool I thought I just wanted to end with Mo Salah I mean what a guy what a guy I mean Egypt beat Morocco and he's straight over you know he doesn't run off with his teammates to celebrate once again endears himself to world football by going round one by one and consoling <laughs> all of the Moroccan players before he went to celebrate what a guy what a guy so you've fallen for some, you know, manicured PR drivel from football today as well. Both you and Alison hauling hook, line and No, sinker. come on. Mo Salah's a nice guy. Yeah, I think he probably is. <laughs> come on. You know, I heard the story about how he sends money to his home and oh, he's incredible. I'm, he's not the only footballer that does yeah, it, but he doesn't have to do it. Yeah, that's true. I've been grumpy enough this year. Yeah, Mo exactly. Top lad. Exactly. Uh, listen, thank you all for listening to the Game Podcast today. Hopefully you leave a little less grumpy than you were at the start. Uh, and you, Tom, as well. Uh, it's transfer deadline day. So by the time you're listening to this, many things may have happened, including Burnley signing Valt Veghorst, which has just happened as we've been speaking. We're going to talk about the transfer window and how it all ends up on the next episode of the Game Podcast. So make sure you're back for that. And we'll look ahead to the return of the Premier League too. Remember, if you want more of our award-winning journalism, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. And if you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. Check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you on Thursday as you're listening to me Daisy Apple's iPhone disassembly robot 
is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 